Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. I, I was wondering what you take about uh, what's happening with the dollar right now, because like I heard a lot of takes with the, like the dollar milkshake theory and stuff like that one or two years ago or something. And uh, yeah, it seems that now the dollar is moving quite rapidly. And yeah, just curious what your thoughts on this are. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, I, I said this in the fiat standard and I've said it um, many times before on Twitter, the way that I see fiat currencies as um, essentially they're all either the dollar or the dollar plus country risk. Um, every other currency out there is just a crappier dollar. Every other currency is just a dollar with less liquidity and more country risk 
and more inflation risk. This is all national currencies. Perhaps there are a few marginal cases that you could say have a little less inflation risk than the U.S. dollar, perhaps. Um, but for the vast majority, and, and argue, you could argue maybe not uh, because they have more systemic risks um, in other ways. But fundamentally, for the vast majority of national currencies, they're all just crappier dollars. And they're less liquid dollars, and they're uh, less uh, – so they have less of a market – and they're less spendable abroad. They're less uh, – so to use the analysis of the uh, fiat standard, they're less saleable across space and time. Uh, it's harder to send any national currency across the world than it is to send the dollar. So it's the dollar is the easiest currency to send. If you wanted to transact between two different people in two different countries – you're more likely to do the transaction with uh, dollars. Um, even if uh, you're going to uh, have two countries that don't use the dollar, they will likely both make a transaction in the dollar because let's say um, Brazil wants to trade with um, Indonesia. Um, it's you know it, it's far more convenient for both of them to have a dollar balance and exchange the dollars. And so domestically in Indonesia, you exchange uh, the Indonesian, I think, rupee it's called. I may be wrong. The Indonesian currency for uh, the dollar. And then you exchange the Brazilian uh, shitcoin. I can't even remember what it is now. I think it is real. They've gone through so many. They had Cruzeiro and Novo Cruzeiro. And then they had Cruzado and Novo Cruzado. And now I think they're real and novo real. I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, you can't keep up with all of the hard forks of the fiat shitcoins. It's it's hard. It's it's almost as hard as uh, regular shitcoins, free market shitcoins. Um, so, so the best way to get rid of your Brazilian money to buy things from foreigners is to uh, sell your Brazilian money for dollars. And the best way to get rid of your Indonesian money is to sell it for dollars. So it's the most liquid money. And so when there is a financial crisis, when there is a shortage of liquidity, this is the time when people don't want to take risks. This is the time when people want safety. This is the time when people are not looking to increase their wealth. They're just looking to preserve their wealth. In these times, the demand increases for the thing that is the most liquid, that is the most saleable. This is really the money. And in this world today, of course, it is the U.S. dollar. It's still the U.S. dollar because it's got far more liquidity than anything else. And it's got far more saleability across space than anything else. It's easier to send it across space than anything else in fiat, at least. Um, Bitcoin arguably has better saleability across space and better saleability across time because nobody can increase its supply. So... This is kind of the uh, long-term proposition for Bitcoin is that its um, ability to hold on to value in the long term and its ability to move across the world, saleability across space and across time, are going to give it an increasing share of the market for money over time. But at this point, you know, we're still uh, at, at its all-time high, Bitcoin was still roughly around 1% of all of the world's money. Currently, it's closer to 0.4% of all the world's money. So we're still a long way off from being the most liquid money, the one that people would run to. And so that's why they all run to the dollar. And so that just means um, 
everybody around the world is buying dollars. So really, if, if you want to understand just how bad things are, you know, you see Americans are complaining about 9% uh, CPI print. Now, clearly, obviously, inflation in the US is much higher than 9%. Um, I mean, the inflation in the correct definition is the increase in the money supply, which is running at around 20% a year these days, I think. Uh, who knows, though, because we lost count at this point. Nobody really figured knows how much money there is. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's running on somewhere around 10, 20% or so. Um, and the increase in the prices of the desirable goods, not the goods that are included in the CPI, is much higher than uh, the goods that are in the CPI because, you know, the CPI is selected by the people who have a very strong vested interest in showing that the number is not very high. So um, because of this, you can see that things are getting very bad for Americans in spite of the fact, so, so in spite of the fact that all of the world is buying dollars, you know, people in Turkey and Brazil and China and all over the world are trying to get around uh, capital restrictions in order to buy more dollars. And um, that's increasing demand for treasuries and increasing demand for dollars and increasing the value of the dollar. And so then think about what is happening to all of the uh, uh, fiat shit coins, the dollar plus country risk fiat shit coins. Um, you know, the Turkish Liras and the Brazilian, uh, whatever it is, and all of these things, the people in those countries are trying to dump them as much as they can in order to move to, to the dollar. And the dollar is still losing value at somewhere around 10, 20% per year. So imagine how bad it is for people who are holding on to the um, fiat of other, the rest of the world. I think it's just, it, it's terrible what's happening. I mean, it's it's so terrible that it makes the dollar look good. I mean, Americans have it good. Well, Americans are sad about their money, but for um, people in Lebanon, if you managed to have had dollars for the last two, three, four years instead of the local shitcoin, you did very well for yourself. Um, and of course, dollars doesn't mean dollars in the bank system because dollars in the banking system are as good as your uh, national currency, basically. So... Um, Overall, uh, yeah, I think it's going to mean a lot more uh, to money going to uh, the U U.S. dollar. But um, in the long run, you know, it's it, it's uh, it, it still doesn't change the dynamic. You know, we we have these at the beginning of financial crises and recessions where the dollar strengthens because inflation in the dollar declines, people will fly to safety. But, um, you know, you're, uh, you have oscillations, um, but the long-term trend cannot be reversed. And thanks to the um, inspired political leadership uh, all over the world, but also in the U.S., that uh, has achieved levels of Keynesian understanding that should not even be legal, um, they have managed to... Um, convinced themselves very, very well that uh, so far, I mean, with all of that's happening, there's very, very, very good consensus among um, uh, economists that, oh, well, this inflation so far has been a freak. Nobody expected it. And um, it wasn't caused by our policies. And it was because of um, Russia and um, 
respiratory illnesses and uh, all kinds of different, uh, you know, things that just happen from the sky and nothing to do with your money. Your money isn't losing value. It's just um, things happened. So um, the, the <laughs> even no matter how much the world wants to buy dollars, in the long run, they are no match for the ability of the U.S. government to print money. So just yesterday, um, we heard that there is a new news item where um, they're saying apparently the U.S. government wants to give $650 billion to the IMF. Or essentially, the IMF wants to give out $650 billion to um, developing countries to uh, because of the impact of the war between Russia and Ukraine and I think the pandemic relief and so on. And this is a courageous, enormous step forward um, in the level of uh, this kind of support. I mean, it's just basically adding 10x. I don't really have the statistics on me, but, you know, the last time this kind of thing happened, I would imagine, you know, when the um, when the U.S. Congress voted to give the IMF a lot of money to help out the developing countries, I don't even remember when this would have happened. Um, I can't even guess a year, but I'm going to guess that it was roughly um, 10x smaller. So right now we're talking 650. I'm going to guess the last one was about 45 or something if, like is, that. Is, that. is that number a coincidence or does that have just so happen to be what we seized from Russia in their reserve? Oh, interesting. Is that what it was? 650? Maybe we, it feels like blood money to us and we're going to now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. Um, yeah. I feel well like that's be. the number I've heard thrown around is that's what we seized from there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in a sense, it's it, it's worth thinking about the dilemma for of U.S. policymakers at this point. And this is the catastrophe that is the U.S. dollar. It's just such a terrible thing that just doesn't work. Um, in order for global monetary system to work, in order for people to be able to trade internationally, everybody needs to have dollars. But then they issue their own currency. And then because they make they do inflation like the dollar does, uh, they don't have the global reserve currency. So then when there's a bank run, people run on their currencies to the dollar. And so at that point, the U.S. policymaker is just witnessing the value of the dollar go up and the value of everything else in the world crash. And I mean, like if, if the U.S. wanted to be sadistic about it, <laughs> they could just starve the entire planet by just watching as uh, everybody else's currencies get destroyed. Uh, while they force them to stay on the dollar-based system and force them to go go away from the to move away from any kind of other working alternative around gold or something else. Fortunately, they're not that sadistic about it, so they force them to stay away from alternatives. They force them to stay in the U.S. dollar, but when they uh, you know they force them to sit on this sinking ship because it's profitable for them. But to their credit, when the ship comes sinking. They will send some lifeboats. And so when the fiat dollar Ponzi comes crashing down, as we see right now, and everybody's running to try and get dollars and get out of all of the dollar-backed instruments, the U.S. government has an enormous amount of uh, dollars that it can use and um, pay loyal central banks and um, help countries that are in financial crises. So... It's 
it's not entirely the case that um, it's it's just the U.S. is being benevolent and it's helping out all those poor countries because the U.S. is rich and all those poor, poor countries are dysfunctional. A big part of it is that these countries are suffering from the dollar-based monetary system, which means that their monetary sins are uh, unforgiven, whereas the U.S.'s monetary sins are easily forgiven. So... Um, because of this, I think it, it it's possible for the U.S. to um, have a large margin of helping out the rest of the world. So this is what we see right now. And in, if you want to see how U.S. power is exercised in the world, it's in these moments. It's the same way that central banks and banking oligopolies get to essentially um, become extremely powerful. It's in the financial crises. It's when there's blood in the street, you know, when the market is collapsing, when the fiat Ponzi has collapsed, when all the credit has been uh, spread out and the fiat money has collapsed. At that point, everybody's over leveraged and anybody who manages to um, have the ability to make money out of thin air. So if you're a banking cartel um, in your local third world uh, kleptocracy, or if you're a global a banking cartel in your global uh, um, Federal Reserve-based uh, cartel for banks. In both of those systems, which is, you know, the U.S. government effectively, in both of those systems, you you become the big boss when the liquidity crashes because you're the one that everybody needs to turn to because you're the one who has the magic money printer that can absolve them of all of their monetary sins. So your bank is broke because you made bad loans. And sometimes it's not even that you made bad loans. It's that they were good loans. But then when interest rates rose and the monetary policy changed and the inflation hit and all of those things, because of the monetary policy, you know, your business goes out of uh, business or uh, many of your borrowers go out of business so they can't pay you back. And that same thing happens with central banks. You know, a global monetary policy does this and then they find themselves short dollars. So at that point, that's when you get to um, sign people up for lifelong debt slavery. This is really the point where you um, move in with the um, <laughs> move in for the kill. Basically, this is when people are desperate. This is when businesses are struggling. You know, businesses that had been built over years and decades and generations, maybe even centuries, will be struggling to make ends meet for their uh, daily payments and they'll need anybody who'll give them credit and they'll give up equity for credit. And so you get to buy enormous amounts of equity at uh, huge discounts if you happen to have liquidity. And of course, if you happen to control the magic money printer and you happen to be uh, the political power behind the magic money printer, so you decide who gets to have the money printer run for them, then basically you turn all of the economic system of capitalism into a pretend play in that, all right, you go around, kids, everybody run around for five, six, seven, eight years, whatever. Everybody start a business. Um, everybody serve customers, make money, invest, borrow, lend, whatever it is. And then, um, and you know, we're going to be relaxing monetary policy. And then when we tighten monetary policy, once monetary policy tightens a bit, doesn't matter everything that you did. We get to basically, um, we, we, we get to discount everything as we want. You know, you then all have to go to the central bank and all need a bailout. And so therefore the central bank gets to decide 
essentially everything. It can revise everything. It can say, all right, well, your business, uh, let's see. Well, what do you do? Well, you sell ice cream and uh, in that mall. Well, I already have too many ice cream shops in that mall. And you have too many payments coming up and you have too many staff. You know what? I don't think you're going to make it. And so your business is out. And then the other ice cream shops gets to make it. So it's uh, think of that in terms of ice cream shops, but also applied for central banks and for governments. And you can see how U.S. politics just has this amazing uh, superpower where every year and um, periodically every decade, there's one big cycle. So every year there's a random country somewhere um, where people are literally starving because of the dollar's shortage. Literally, people can't get fuel. People can't get food. People are um, suffering because the government can no longer pay for its fuel bills. And I mean, Sri Lanka today, Lebanon last year, um, Zimbabwe before that, uh, Venezuela every year seemingly. We see this happen incredibly frequently. And I think it's, it's, it's sad to see, but it looks like it's going to be happening at a larger scale for more countries over the coming months and years. So when that happens, all of these countries are desperate for dollars. And um, this is the time when basically U.S. foreign policy can get whatever it wants from them. Um, and um, not just U.S. foreign policy, but also all kinds of U.S. interests. So this is the time when U.S. corporations that want something from Sri Lanka, I mean, this is, this is the good time. This is the time to be really um, going into Sri Lanka and, um, you know, buying up assets because people in Sri Lanka are desperate right now. So you can get, um, you know, you can get factories and businesses and um, um, proper capital uh, for an enormous discount because of the shortage of the dollar. So it it means that these businesses will use the U.S. government in order to um, facilitate their entry and their ability to buy at a cheap rate. And so they will exercise influence on U.S. government domestically here in, in the U.S., I mean, so that it can, um, you know, when you're bailing out the Sri Lankan government, uh, you know, include that they're going to give us access to this or that for this corporation, and um, that's where, you know, the asset stripping happens. This is where um, forests and mines and oil fields get handed over to foreigners um, because, you know, your government is playing in a stupid casino, a stupid monopoly financial system that is more akin to a casino. So, yeah, it looks bleak <laughs> to answer your question. Um and what complicates things, of course, I mean, so far, everything that I've discussed is just the way that things have worked so far. But um, perhaps this time is different. We always get people saying this time is different. And in many cases, it isn't. But perhaps now things are different because of the Russian-Ukraine war and because of Bitcoin and because of, well, um, I think more specifically, really, the fact that Russia was able to maintain the value of its currency and, in fact, have its currency appreciate over time after the war is a huge indication that uh, we may really, it may actually be different this time. It is, it, it might be different because there's, uh, there's a possibility for you to exist outside of the dollar system, even after they take your dollar uh, reserves you can still continue to uh, operate and trade with the rest of the world. And um, 
it seems to be working. I mean, uh, the rest of the world seems to care more about being able to secure energy from uh, Russia and China than about um, being engaged in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And it's uh, it's aggravating for um, American foreign policy, um, and they kind of um, don't like it, but it's, you know, uh, India can't afford to um, starve its people of energy. Well, neither can Germany. No, nobody can afford to just give up on energies. And um, perhaps a smarter thing to do would be not to have spent the last three, four decades being hysterical about CO two and destroying the entire the entire capacity for industrialized nations to produce the energy that they need. Instead of um, doing that, perhaps. Um, that would be a more sane strategy, and that would have um, left uh, the West far less dependent on uh, Russian oil and protected uh, their uh, fiat dollar status more. But, I mean, this is kind of the the redeeming thing about fiat money is that uh, <laughs> it makes the people who use it so high time preference that eventually... Um, they just uh, degenerate into high-time preference idiots that cannot think in the long term. So we've had decades of fiat authorities dismantling the industrial capacity of their societies because (laughs) they believe CO2 is going to boil oceans or some stupid uh, nonsense or the other that they taught them at fiat universities. And... um, the result of that is, you know, again, whatever you think about this, whether it's uh, nice or bad or ugly, the result of it is that we do have seemingly a viable alternative to the U.S. dollar system outside of the dollar system where Russia seems to be trading with the rest of the world and it seems to be working out fine. So um, it's um, it, it'll be interesting to see. I think... Um, we might be heading towards something similar to what was called the Plaza Accord in the 1980s, where there was something similar to this happening in the 1980s when Volcker was chairman of the Fed. And uh, the same thing uh, was happening where you had this kind of rebalancing where um, Germany and uh, Japan are constantly uh, buying up uh, sorry, are constantly exporting goods to the U.S. and the U.S. is exporting treasury bills, basically, and dollars to buy them. And so you're building up a trade uh, imbalance. This was the case back then with Japan and Germany. They were exporting and the U.S. was importing. And that led to just a devaluation of the dollar because it led to, um, well, when dollar appreciated because of this, compared to those other currencies. And so then they needed to keep um, stacking more um, dollars in order to maintain the currency. And so we found they found themselves in this situation where the currency is just oscillating and they needed to basically agree on central banking swaps in order to manage the exchange rates. Because ultimately you can't run them as independent central banks in a fiat monetary system if you don't have an independent money. That's really the problem. If you had gold, you can have independent central banks. Then, you know, you can have central banks that are at war with each other, but can still settle with each other. You know, there's a battlefield where our soldiers are killing each other, but someone else, our central bank, meets with your central bank and hands him a big chunk of gold so that we can continue to trade with one another so that we can both continue to eat. It could happen. Um, 
and you could have an, uh, uh, you could have an independent central banking system around the world if the money was neutral because then nobody decides what is uh, gold nobody can print gold and um i don't have to trust you in or and i don't have to be your ally and friend in order to take payment from you i take a gold bar from you and i uh, weigh it and test it and assay it myself and sure it's uh, authenticity and we can continue to trade with one another but in this current world where money is not neutral money is produced by one of the central banks the other central banks have to work for the one that makes the money it it has to be it has to be a hierarchical relationship that's why in the fiat standards i say it's a um it's it's a system with one full node there really is only one full node it's the federal reserve so the other nodes you know they either follow the rules or they um don't get to play they get kicked out they get uh they get kicked out of the system. It's a centralized system and there's one full node. So the Plaza Accords back then were the way in which basically the German, Japanese, and uh, U.S. Central Bank got together and tried to fix and um, exchange rates. And um, essentially the U.S. Do- the U.S. government would print dollars to give them in order to stabilize uh, the value of the currencies whenever the need arised. And um, they would use it, they, they would try and manipulate the value of all of these currencies. And since the 80s, to be fair, I mean, I, I have to go wash my mouth after I say this, but they've relatively done a good job of maintaining the value of the fiat um, shitcoins compared to one another. I mean, okay, so the last, uh, I, and this becomes obvious when you look at the last few weeks or months where we saw the dollar rise against the euro significantly. Yet still, we're still talking about a you know twenty percent move. It's the dollar and the euro have always been around this range of one to one point two or something like that. So it's still a relatively narrow range. And that's not something that has emerged on the free market. If this was left on the free market, it, it would have been far more complicated. The way that that has been arranged is that the central banks have direct swipe lines with one another. Um, and uh, the U.S. central bank is out there basically ensuring and intervening in foreign exchange markets and in monetary policy markets and with other foreign central banks and with the banking system all over the world to ensure that, you know, shit doesn't get too crazy things don't go too wild that uh, people in europe and people in the u.s can have this general range for um, exchange rates so i think we're going to be getting this kind of new financial monetary world order um soon i i i think the um the political moment is very much conducive for this kind of uh, extremely insane, uh, grand uh, planning and uh, grand historical vision moments. You know, now is the time for a great reset and um, fixing capitalism. And we just had a pandemic and we need to rebuild and build back better. All of this stuff has been getting a lot of prominence. And I think... Um, that's going to go into the monetaries. Uh, we're going to start hearing about we need a great monetary reset soon. I think that's going to be the big one. That's going to be the culmination. And I think the uh, the, the, the the real and, and we've had a whole discussion in one of the podcasts on this. The real difference, the, the real um, 
implication that this is going to have is that the uh, Chinese yuan is going to have a bigger role to play in the future global monetary system. Unless we get into some kind of World War Three. realistically, we're going to still end up having one global monetary system where everybody uses it. Um, you know, ultimately, no matter what happens, people in China and the US are going to want to trade with one another. And people in China are going to want to trade with the Russians. And they're all going to end up using most likely one monetary system. We could end up with two. I don't know. I mean, perhaps two, but I think it would be catastrophic if we do two. Uh, that, sorry to cut you off, but the BRICS yeah. thing, is that is that what you're trying to say? Like, you know that um, they're trying to um, make an alliance altogether, all of these countries like India, Russia, Brazil. And is that what you're trying to say? Like, sort of a kind of a scenario that we've seen with the BRICS, what's happening could be the global thing since it's not a global thing at the moment. It's only countries that don't like America or don't like the system. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. They've been talking about this stuff for many, many, many years, uh, you know, the bricks and getting off the dollar and so on. So I'm cautious to say this is it. Um, there's an entire industry of people on the internet who have been saying this is it for 50 years now. Um, so who knows? We've had many false dawns. But yeah, again, I mean, the fact that the Russian ruble is strengthening outside of the dollar suggests that there's something there. But I just think in terms of monetary economics, I mean, I think if we end up with different monetary systems around the world, that's just uh, shitcoiners' uh, barter fetishism. Um, it, it doesn't make sense. So what are people in China going to do? People in China are still going to want to trade with the U.S. There's no way around it. You know, if you stop trade between the Chinese and the U.S., you're going to starve uh, maybe a billion people between China and the U.S. They're both utterly reliant on trading with one another and no amount of politics is going to stop that unless there's like some nuclear war or something absolutely terrible. But, you know, barring that kind of scenario, or even, you know, assuming after that scenario happens, <laughs> after the rubble, eventually, there, whatever politics is taking place anywhere, whatever is going on, the world is interconnected. People are going to want to trade. So people in China need to trade with people in the US and they want to trade with people in Russia. So the idea that they're going to have two wallets, two monies, internationally, I don't see it as very practical. I see it as, I think, it's a good, um, this is one of those things where it's a good um, demonstration of, it's, it's, it's a good bargaining chip and it's a good negotiating card to have with you. So I think of it from the perspective of the Chinese, what the Chinese are doing essentially is rallying these countries together and saying, hey, look, the ruble can survive outside the dollar. We don't need you. And we can get the Saudis and the Iranians, you know, um, and we can get the Brazilians and Argentina and India and um, all of these other countries, lots of oil, lots of money, lots of uh, resources. And we can just build our own monetary system. And then we'll have an exchange between us and, you know, the Western uh, fiat monetary system. With that kind of fallback position, you can drag the U.S. into a negotiating table about changing the way that the U.S. dollar system works. So it's good to have, this is the kind of, you know, the, 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 the battalion that you prepare um, knowing that it's not going to fight, but you have to still prepare it because you need to demonstrate the strength. 
And once, if you prepare it, then they're not going to need to fight. So in a sense, I think that's a more likely scenario, particularly when you keep in mind just how friendly global politics is at the top level. Um, you know, like just look at the influence that China has had globally um, and how much influence they have across Europe and the US and how much um, reliance the world has on them. I think they're able to come out of this with a very big win monetarily by making the yuan uh, the big winner from this rather than an alternative, perhaps. Although, who knows? Who knows? I mean, this is all speculation. But um, my perhaps it's just my intuition that we're going to have two separate systems is, is, is not workable. But who knows? Maybe we will get it and it will take decades for it to stop working. Um, you know, many bad ideas have survived for decades before. This might not be the uh, last. Yeah, um, I, I think um, when you hear, they, they mention this a lot, especially like, I don't know if you paid attention to uh, the Putin kind of speech where uh, he keeps saying like the, the, the world, one world order where like one country rules them all system doesn't work for us anymore or prove that it's not actually um, how we should uh, be. So they keep throwing this idea that it needs to be multiple countries kind of like bossing everybody around rather than just uh, we all uh, kind of under um, whatever the empire at the moment, America, I guess. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I say I see the thing is um, I've heard once that uh, China might not be interested to put her currency as the uh, as the the country for standard or to to be adopted uh, adopted by other countries and the reason why because they want to be the industrial force and i had this conversation that where they were saying like they want to be uh, industrial and they want to produce stuff if their currency becomes in demand by other global countries it might make their country flex away and they have to focus on two things like the economics of it while also wanting things to be cheap produced in China. So everybody kind of orders it from there. I don't know if that's uh, still a relevant thing. Or still like Could that. well be, actually. I mean, they are, uh, they are communists and they have moved from communism to essentially Keynesianism. So... It might well be the case that they believe the Keynesian bullshit about it's actually good for you that your currency devalues. Um, maybe. I mean, in a sense, they are kind of pressed into a world in which their currency uh, appreciates because in this dollar system, the money is um, not neutral. And so when the US dollar keeps printing, they keep stacking dollars and their uh, money appreciates next to the dollar. And they don't like this in a sense, so they just keep stacking uh, treasuries in order to try and not uh, make the currency appreciate so much. But um, I don't know. I, I can't tell you what the Communist Party genuinely thinks uh, on this. But I would say, I mean, uh, the, the, there is the kind of Keynesian idea that, yeah, you want to devalue your currency. But there's also the very kind of primitive idea that, you know, you want to make people use your money so you can print your money. Um, yeah. They they may be Keynesian, but they're not stupid. Well, yeah, difficult really to compromise. And generally, if you are Keynesian, you let's face it, you're not very bright. Um, so maybe they're not very Keynesian. Um, maybe they just I, 
maybe this is just the kind of the ruling. Uh, I mean, they understand what they're doing. If you could look at how they act, it's not entirely Keynesian. You know, they are um, accumulating reserves. They're preventing their currency from depreciating, preventing from from appreciating, but they are accumulating reserves, which is fine. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're uh, Keynesians. You might not necessarily need your currency to appreciate. Them. Well, no, obviously the the world the, their people would be better off. You know, Chinese people would be better off if the currency was appreciating, because then uh, Chinese people would have more money to buy things, and uh, things would be more expensive for Americans to buy. Americans would have um, more expensive uh, time. Um, more expensive goods to buy because their currency would be weaker. But um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? My my argument is always that um, I think if if we see what China did, especially in Africa, like they basically they've been working there for the last 15, 20 years and they've been like slowly and steadily kind of building their dominance. And uh, I always feel like they've expanded very well in Africa and they own most of all all the majority of the ports and and they basically moved a lot of their industry into these countries. And I feel like they have a plan where they will produce whatever the world needs, not just from China. Uh, It could be done anywhere else in the world. And they saw Africa as the perfect kind of environment for them to like, Let's move some of our production into these countries so we can, um, I don't know, like create this balance, whether it's happening in China or happening outside of China. Meanwhile, the currency is in demand and also obviously like um, fluctuates up and down. So I, I don't agree with the theory that they have no intention to do so. Uh, because they want to keep uh, their currency very uh, low so people can buy from them against others or especially against the dollar. And we have to notice the, the expansion that they have been doing in Africa. Pretty much they've, they've owned everything now or as much as they can at the moment. And uh, meanwhile, everybody else like France and everybody's like, oh, wow, uh, China's like moved in already and we haven't we've been like uh, stuck in this uh, uh, situation for so many years and we haven't done as much as they did so yeah that's that's uh, about time would tell i guess i my theory is just uh based on what i uh seen indeed i want to ask you i want to ask you something else if um <clears throat> if you know any example that uh, same thing i might change the topic for a bit um but like in libya at the moment we have two central banks uh, which is um i always wonder like has then has there any country in the world have suffered from the same situation where basically what happened uh, 2014 or 13 somewhere around there um, the 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 governor uh, of the central bank that used to be in Libya uh, basically his term was about to end but he didn't give wanted to give power so um, he stayed in his seat and his deputy basically was chosen by the parliament to to overtake. But he didn't want to obviously hand out the office and he protected that by his militia. So like that guy, basically, the the deputy went to the other side of the country, to Benghazi, and set up his own central bank. And and now we have two of them. And each of them are basically like trying to print money and like trying to like do all of this stuff. But like when I go 
most of the stuff they talk about, we uh, associate things with history. Have Has any ever, like, in history, we've had this issue, like what we have right now? Like, one country, two central banks, they they just, like... They, we, 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 we're technically, we're still one country, but kind of like we have two of everything. So if, if anybody gets mad or being to- told to hand over the ministry, let's, for example, in Tripoli, he will leave or somebody else will set up another ministry in Benghazi. But we're still under the same country. And that's why we most of the time will have two governments like right now. We have two governments, one in the east side, one in the west side. But that's, I've heard about that. I think like it happens mostly in Africa. But central banks is like first time I've seen, or I keep researching and never find anything that is uh, similar to that situation. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeadeen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, I can't think of anything. Um, I haven't heard of any of these examples uh, where two central banks exist. Um, I mean, there would be like many cases where one country's central bank is uh, having its currency used in another current country, but a central bank hard fork? I've never heard of one. (laughs) And you know the thing, like they use the same print in the note, but yeah. it, has, it has a different signature because below, like, you would have the governor actually sign it. So, like, we have this huge issue that you'll have this, this, obviously, we do everything in cash. So, for example, if you need to, like, make an exchange on a land or a house, that would be, like, let's say a million. And that would be, like, um, a big chunk of money. And you have to, like, look at every signature at every note because oh my god yes if you had someone or oh, that's money mixed up nobody is going to accept it for example in Tripoli, if it came from Benghazi, nobody's going to take it and then you're going to end up with money that is not used and you have to send it somewhere at the other side and exchange it for less and all of this stuff it's a huge like mess that I feel like um i'm trying to, to understand if anybody in the history of a human being have lived the same way so verifying like signatures in each note such a like 
stupid thing to do. So they're both just printing money. And what about like the banking system? Um, the, who, who has the banks? Uh, they're, they're divided. divided. Yeah, they're basically the the one in Tripoli because when the other guy went to Benghazi and set up the bank, he cut off the 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 the, the infrastructure between the two. So we're not allowed to phys- um like you cannot deposit money in Benghazi and use it in Tripoli. You have to switch or have two banks at the at different regions. Yeah, it's a whole mess up situation. Yeah. So you didn't happen to get an airdrop, like if you had an account in one bank, you would get money from the two banks, from the two yep. central banks, no? Yeah, or is nope. it just one? Yeah, it's just you have to get two. Yeah, so you have to get one in there and one in there and do business with that one that is separated from this one with the separate like uh, uh, notes that have a different signature and all of this stuff. So yeah it's it keeps do, doing it's it keep going in circles really recently um the the guy from Benghazi also just like last month he's trying to print like another 4 billion and because that that side of libya is kind of controlled by by russia but i guess the russian said like this is not the right time to like create this stuff and um and the money got stuck in malta uh, actually he he actually made it happen he printed it, but it was uh, made in Switzerland, I think, and was traveling through Switzerland, Europe, and then Malta. And then ba- they they basically stopped it over there because uh, with the oil situation and whatever is happening, they don't want to create like uh, more problems in Libya. Yeah. Fascinating. And uh, what's the Libyan dinar like these days? Where are we at in exchange it's, rates? Uh, at the moment, it has been stable for a year, exactly, uh, at five dinars for $1. So throughout the last 11, 11 years, we've been going up to like 11, 12 uh, dinar for $1 and then back to five and then we go up again and all of that. Uh, it depends on the printing. So, for example, now it started to go up. I think it's 5.2 today because of the recent news as well. That, um, oh, yeah, <laughs> there is the, the, today what happened is the, 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 the government of Tripoli have decided to change the guy, uh, the chairman of the oil ministry, but he didn't want to give office. So they were fighting each other for like the last two days. And finally today, they managed to like overpower him and take office. So also that, um, and, and the thing is because we haven't been producing oil for the last, since, since the Ukraine thing, I think I've told you about that. Since the Ukraine thing happened, they didn't want um, Libya to produce because everybody else can make more money uh, because of that shortage. But uh, as of today, they put another guy in. And, uh, and yeah, and um, yeah, I think for a year we've been at five, which is great, but uh, we still have a, a governor that he's not elected, but only there because of his powers and stuff. <clears throat> we can't trust that guy. Yeah, I mean, so, well, I mean, the good news is it's not, uh, you haven't had a lot of inflation yeah. so far. The yeah. bad news is you have a lot of inflation up front coming yeah. up. Coming up, yeah. Four billion. Second um, Malta could be here in a matter of hours. And what, what was the exchange rate under Gaddafi? I think it was the, the dollar. One, the dinar was more than the dollar, wasn't it? No, no, no. It was one uh, one point two to the dollar. So every one dinar point two is one dollar. Okay, so slightly less yeah. than a dollar. We were we were at three at the beginning years of Gaddafi, but for last 
15 years of Gaddafi, which is say from like 2000 uh, or just before that until 2011, we were at 1.3. Before that, it was three Libyan dinars per dollar. Yeah. Yeah. So he revalued it and increased the value. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. So hang on. So it was. So it was at thirty-three cents for a dollar, and then it became eighty something cents a dollar. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it, suddenly, it the value of your money went up. Yeah. Double. Yeah, double, and mainly because of the the huge production of oil that um, um, really kicked in at the end of because uh, we had an embargo we had an embargo for most of the years that Gaddafi was there by the Americans and we're mm-hmm. not allowed to basically do anything for uh, I think uh, the first 15 years of his life or for uh, for him becoming the leader and then uh, that that because of the issue with Lockerbie bombing I don't know if you know the case yes yes case. And from, yeah, uh, from the 80s, from the mid 80s, not from the beginning of his rule, from the mid 80s. No, 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 not from the beginning. Yeah, when they were like not happy with him and he decided to be a bit rogue, they did that so they can put him in place and, and, and boss him basically or control whatever is happening in Libya. And that continued, I think, until uh, at the beginning of the uh, 2000s. And he paid uh, about four billion to the families and a couple of more billions to America and all of that. But the, the condition was to allow the American oil companies to come in and do deals in Libya. And that excelled very fast and very quick until basically he went a little bit more mad and they kind of got bored of him and they decided that he needs to leave. And they used us to get rid of him. <laughs> that yeah. that lawless, lawless state, basically, that uh, until today is just like a big, big mess. Yeah, uh, my my father went and uh, traveled there. My father's a surgeon, and he oh, yeah? Was, yeah he traveled to Libya. Um, I think maybe three times uh, since yeah. two thousand eleven. Big support uh, Gaddafi was, yeah, of like whatever Arab nations coming to Libya, working in Libya, have an opportunity. He, yeah, he always uh, did no. That. He 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 went after Gaddafi was removed. He went oh. after the war started. He went uh, three times uh, on like voluntary missions. Oh, okay, yeah, all right. But all right. Uh, but he was. I mean, I I have to admit, like he uh, he <laughs> changed my perspective on this. Like you watch and you think, all right, Muhammad is just a despot, tyrant, awful, horrible person. And of course, he was crazy and he was a lunatic and yeah. he did insane things and he did insanely hilarious things that you would not believe. Um, the stories about him, you, you don't, you, you can't even tell what's uh, fact from fiction um, because yeah. it's uh, the fact is usually stranger than fiction with him. He's <laughs> amazing. But, um, you know, the, my dad went there and he told me, you know, I, I spoke to all the Libyans and they said, you know, like he, he went to the hospitals. My dad just went and worked at hospitals that he didn't uh, see anything other than the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, everybody said, look at all these amazing war, uh, he, he, uh, hospitals that were built under Qaddafi. And now the country's gone. Um, everything's getting yeah, destroyed. Yeah, we thought, we thought basically, I, I was against Gaddafi because of the, the way he behaved like madly at the last five years, six years of his life, I guess like too much drugs or too much like um, kind of um, <clears throat> like his persona got gone into him. And he, they, we were seeing money, but 
we were not seeing the level that we saw Dubai and Emirates advance and all of that. <clears throat> we were hoping to see ourselves similar to that scenario. But I guess... I mean, yeah, you thought you would get Abu Dhabi and Dubai and you ended up becoming Mogadishu, more like. Yeah, Somalia, um, Mogadishu, all of these scenarios, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just... Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a great... Uh, tragedy and just the thinking of this idea that uh, we can just have an election and have a democracy and then everybody falls into place it just doesn't work it doesn't work um, anywhere really um yeah i, I hope uh, somebody like kind of uh, figures out a new governance system you know we keep pushing for the democracy thing and it doesn't work we, it doesn't work. we you guys yeah. you guys i i i think the solution is to bring the sanusis back to libya i think the solution for all countries is to bring back their uh, legitimate royal family the sanusis were fine really if you think Gaddafi was uh, better than now the sanusis were better than Gaddafi. if the sanusis could manage the oil they would have allowed private companies to exploit it they would not have been financing terrorism like that insane lunatic Qaddafi and they would not be um, they would not lead a civil war against uh, anybody they would just be legitimate and everybody would support them because they're just a royal family and they're descended from the Hashemites so they had that legitimacy yeah just the guy that is uh, there uh, uh, Prince Mohammed I think his name uh, mm -hmm. he's, he's weak he, he's just he comes out every once a year for his the, the royal uh, <clears throat> day of independence of Libya and wishes everybody well. He lives here in London. But uh, when always asked about whether he's serious about his position or whether he would be interested to, to gain back his um, royal uh, statue in Libya, he says, uh, if, if the Libyan people want me, I'll, I'll come back, but <clears throat> I have to see signs from the street. Like nobody's gonna come out in the street now and face and face weapons and bullets, and 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 go through this trauma again because we want to put the <clears throat> royal guy back. Like he needs to figure it out. I don't know how. <clears throat> but I, I mean, on a, you know the. Um... The thing about Kings is like, he's very different from all of these uh, militia leaders that you guys have. You know, all of these, um, basically a high time preference soldiers of the bureaucracy or the military, people who just uh, grew up in the institution and are fighting to the death to be able to become in power. You know, you, you climb up in this. And this guy's from different. He's, he's not going to be fighting. He's not going to start a militia. He's not going to go shoot people. He's not going to take sides. And um, I think the only way that things will happen is that you need popular support and you need, um, I, I like, you know, we've discussed this when we had Prince Philip from Serbia and we also had, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we discussed uh, Liechtenstein, the Prince uh, Hans Adam of Liechtenstein. He's written a book, The State in the Third Millennium. And, um, you know, he says essentially um, democracy and monarchy can work together through self-determination at a local level. Every local community gets to decide whether it wants to secede and be independent or whether it wants to join any um, political entity. And it's the job of princes to appeal to them. So, yeah, he, this is what he needs to do. He needs to just start saying... If parts of Libya want to come and join me, I'm happy to uh, make them 
independent uh, princehood shakedoms. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, there, there is, there is a. Uh, he has a <clears throat> people that um, uh, talk about his support and want him back and and do all of that, but they always face a lot of militias, a lot of like um, bad like things happen to them. So I don't know. Yeah, but you know the royalists are not out there fighting the militias. That's yeah, the good thing. No. No, no, nobody hates them at the very least. Like no. The militias are fighting each other. They're not out there shooting at the royalists. So if, you know, mm. I mean, it, it, it might take a while. It might continue to be horrible. But if there's a way out, it's going to have to be somebody who's not. It, it can't be a way out that gives one part of the country complete uh, dominance and control over the others. You need some kind of neutral party to be the winner. And that's what a king is. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We'll see. I think the stable monarchies of the region need to start working on this. I think they need to just make it the policy objective to install kings in all of these failed dysfunctional socialist republic and shitholes of the Arab world. I th th this would be a really smart thing. Like if the Moroccan, Jordanian, and uh, Gulf uh, kings would get together and decide, all right. We need to find adult to take over uh, Libya and all of these places that are just completely dysfunctional and then falling apart where people are dying. I mean, it's it's, it's terrible. Like you're, you, Libyans and Syrians and Iraqis are just going to end up uh, everywhere Wait. else in the Arab world. <clears throat> everywhere else. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to just become refugees everywhere. And it's yeah. a, the, the, the refugee problem continues to exacerbate. It's not like it was just a one-off thing where... You know, you had refugees and they were kicked out. There's still 20, 30, 40, 50 million people in Iraq and Syria that could leave over the next five, 10 years. <clears throat> and, uh, something needs to be done about this. Yeah, this, I was, I was, I just came back from <clears throat> Libya, and summertime is the, the the basically the high season time of uh, all of these dinghies leaving the Libyan shores, heading for uh, Italy and Malta and rest of Europe and stuff. So I was surprised because I, the same thing, I, I didn't feel like it's still a thing. I felt like maybe now it's no longer uh, an issue, but I saw with my own eyes, like um, uh, it's, still, it's still happening. Uh, drug lords and warlords are still making like thousands and thousands of money. Uh, I actually witnessed, uh, <clears throat> witnessed a sale of a SIM card number, uh, which, which went for several millions. And the catch is, you're like, why? Why is a SIM number that is not even like something special? Uh, why is it been sold for like a million plus? And the reason is because this phone number is spread around Iraq and Syria, and families or they would pass along. And if you come to Libya or make it to Libya, you basically call this number, and somebody's gonna basically answer and and come and pick you up or prepare like a a whole like trip for you. So it's kind of like, wow, I was like very like um, amazed by uh, the idea that there is phone numbers uh, of Libyan SIM cards of these uh, <coughs> smuggling guys that been sold and you can start a business off of that SIM card. So, for example, if I want to go into the smuggling industry in Libya, you just buy one of these. 
Exactly. So find one of these numbers, buy them. Why? Because this number is going to receive calls because it's already in, in Iraq and Syria and also Africa as well. And yeah, yeah, somebody will call and be like, ah, I want to make it from here to there and how much it is and what are the dates and what I need to do. And they would give you instructions, you would give them instructions and of how to come here. And then like uh, from the day that you be in Libya, they, they basically they'll, they'll take over and, uh, and get you sorted. Yeah. For a couple of, a couple of thousands, uh, a man so, or uh, a person. So like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. How long is the uh, dinghy ride from Libya to Malta? Uh, about a day or less. Uh, depends on the, how steady the sea is. Uh, Malta is about 300, 300 miles away. So, but the dinghies, it, it will take you like a, a good, a, good uh, uh, a day or a little bit less to, to get there. But the, the thing is, <clears throat> it's, um, what they do is they would, they would, you'd have a dinghy where all of the people get in and you have like the smuggler who has like an actual boat. And he will basically uh, pull you to a certain distance where they know this is where Libya ends and kind of the neutral water area starts where EU and Italy boats, uh, rescue boats, room around that area. And they will give them a small, uh, um, uh, what's that phone thing? The, um, uh, radio. Yeah, they would give them a radio and they would tell them like from here, just like, start asking for help until somebody picks the signal and if you will end up in the sea for about like seven hours eight hours and somebody will, will come and pick you up from eu or from these uh, areas or if you are gonna be unlucky you might face a bit of hostility in the water where basically eu will try and push you back to the libya shores where they call Libyan coast guards and they would come and pick you up and bring you back to Libya. So um, it depends the, uh, the connection. Does that happen often? Or yeah. do they usually take them to Italy? Yeah, because um, um, what, what happens is uh, they have deals. So EU has, or whatever who's in there, will have deals with uh, different Libyan smugglers. So some of them, they will accept it, but some of them, if they don't know where these boats are coming from or they have no idea about it, they would send it back because they want few smugglers to actually make the money. Not anybody can go into business. So if I want to start this business, this is the thing that I'm going to struggle with. My boats are going to be intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard because I'm not connected with that kind of ring where I'm a smuggler. I know all about Europe boats and I, I, they know I'm releasing two boats this morning. And they know the signal of these boats, so they'll allow them to be uh, in Europe. But if I'm, if I'm new and I'm not connected, uh, my boats would be sent back. Yeah. I see. So the Libyan Coast Guard is kind of running the oligopoly on this. That's the cartel that's handling that business. Exactly. Exactly. So, and they basically get the supply from, uh, from Europe. They, they get the boats, the guns, everything and else. Are the Europeans, uh, why, why don't the Europeans just turn everybody back? I, that's that's the thing about like I think the international laws and that if you basically uh, if a human is in need or kind of escaping uh, a civil war country legally they can't send them back. So what's uh, what's the Europeans' criteria for whether they turn you back or they let you in? 
unstable. Uh, they they basically for me as as I am in 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 London right now, yeah. So I can apply for asylum. No, no, no. I mean uh, for the boat, not the legal status. Like why why did they decide that this boat of refugees we're gonna take uh, back? Or we're gonna... So that's why they put a mixture of kids, well, mothers, uh, and older people, and all of that. So if the boat has that mixture, they they rarely or ever send them back. But if it's just just few men or a couple of men, they will fight them and they will send them back. So it's oh, always okay. you have to you have to get a boat of a mixture age and uh, gender. So I presume I presume the cost for children and women is much lower than the cost for men because they're valuable to keep the boat go through. Yeah, and you're actually if you're a guy or a, a man trying to travel, you might be stuck in Libya for several weeks because they can't find the family to actually be in the boat. And oh. that, that would be another issue. Yeah. And 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 that could I don't know, a week, two weeks until they find someone who's with their kids and all the mother or whatever and they're uh, ready to go and uh, they can uh, they can do it. Obviously you have you have these uh, situations where they want to risk it. A couple of men they want to risk it. Uh, sometimes they make it, sometimes they don't, but uh, it's a risk that they have to take. So, is it does it happen that you could just keep going with the dinghy and not get interrupted and actually land on the shores of Malta? Rarely, rarely. No, yeah, no, no it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, they'll find you. It's it's kind of a short distance, so it's very easy for them to cover. It's very easy for them to figure out whatever is happening. There's two things that would happen: either you would die <clears throat> uh, halfway there because of I don't know a failure with the dinghy, panic. Um, and there are a lot of fighting between these refugees that happens in a way because uh, uh, to, the, to the law, if they catch you, if, if what they do sometimes is if, if it's a man, a couple of men in a boat, they would take a picture of whoever is leading the boat. And once you are in the shore, they would put you in jail because they would uh, regard you as the smuggler of, of, of the operation. And you will end up in jail for several years in Europe, in Malta, Italy, whatever you end up with. So um, it's a lot of issues when uh, when that happens. But there's also uh, if you then get caught, uh, there's several of them that end up uh, yeah drowning because I kid you not, like I think eighty percent of those people don't know how to swim, and they just that take that risk in 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 an unbelievable way. Like it's just mind blowing for me that. It continues to happen and they know about this risk and they know that they would die or they would end up being this, but they still do it. Yeah, it's desperation, I guess. Desperation. People are desperate. It is. It's desperation. That's what it is. Yeah. And these these countries, along with Libya, it's, everybody's desperate. So. Yeah, I mean, this is this is another thing when you think of um, the evils of Qaddafi, it's something to keep in mind that that industry did not exist when he was there um, and it goes without saying it also did not exist under the Senussis. yeah he said that he said a couple when when they were trying back in 2011 he said i'll open the 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 beaches and the and the, all the shores the libya shores and the floods from africa is going to go through all of libya and but they didn't I guess, I don't know if they didn't care. I guess they didn't, um, they knew it was going to happen and everybody knew it was going to happen. And he made, made it not happen for as long as he was there. But they didn't care at that point, I guess. <clears throat> yeah, they promised us democracy. But... Yeah, look how well that worked out, huh? Yeah. 
really it was a uh, it was a great uh, uh, the, uh, it was a great way to uh, introduce me to the work of Hans Hermann Hoppe watching all of these democratic projects turn into exactly what he says and realizing that um, that's not uh, that's not an exception that's just what democracy is and it's just um, if you have a rich society that is already developed and industrialized and you add democracy then it takes a time for <laughs> the democracy to work and destroy it um, but it still does. I mean, you look at the modern Western democracies as they've bankrupted themselves. They're mm. highly inflationary and they're in enormous amounts of debt. And the chickens seem to be coming home to roost now. And um, hard to make a case for democracy with all of this going on. So, I mean, how does a riff, how does somebody get out? I mean, even let's just say in like in the most idealized case where wealthy bitcoiners want to get these guys out and they there's the resources are there but the you know you can't it, there may be a limit to what can be done here right if the government is monitoring every possible exit route yeah i mean um it, it is kind of uh i think at the moment nobody cares really for the first um, uh, five years since 2011, 2016, and 17, <clears throat> it was a huge thing. Uh, but as soon as Libya became so like chaotic and a lot of fighting going on between the Libyans themselves, crossing Libya is a risk at that point. So it's not like the same amount. Because, for example, <clears throat> uh, the, at the beginning, we used to have even uh, uh, people from Syria, Iraq, and all of these countries that it's not in their way. Libya is not geographically in their way, but they made their way around there to just to get access to 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 Italy or to to Europe, let's say, because they're closer if they want to cross from Turkey. But Libya was kind of safe. It was OK. And all of that, we were kind of not sure what's going to happen. We were even between us Libyans. We had no uh, strong militias that overtaken everything now. But now, like the, the whole situation got very crazy that we only see the real desperate people from Africa that want to uh, get across. And, and because of that, it's uh, uh, hopeless. Like there's nothing much. Um, there is like rescue uh, boats and people that are trying to do stuff. And uh, they just spend like the whole summer in the sea and roaming around and listen to radios and all of that with a bunch of lawyers like in their stuff but it's not yeah when did the governments go bankrupt and can't it's not it's just a bad deal for them to restrict i mean they just have better things to do than restrict yeah that's i don't know that's a tricky question isn't it it's like how how can you get them bankrupt really well it's like i want you know we talked in the beginning when i was here about the us and how the endless ability to print money and i'm trying to think through when yeah. does it when does that when does that end? But even, and, you know, think about Bitcoin going where it's needed. And that's really like people are using it in those situations. But then you still have a lot of these situations where they're not even able to even get off zero to move, to move that hardship, to change that situation. This is going to take a long time. It's just feel like this is. No, like, to be, to be honest, uh, in, in, in terms of Bitcoin and what it's doing to the to, to, to country like mine, I think it's it's changing massively, like the opportunity that we have at the moment. Like even for me, like I moved to the UK, I had no way of moving my money or value to come and live in another country because I cannot use the banks locally. 
obviously I cannot withdraw my money because they don't allow you to withdraw your money. Plus, you you can't even send the money to like a UK bank account, even if it's not it's your bank account and it's your name on it. So, uh, and that's basically how I discovered Bitcoin back in 2016. And from there on, you see all of these people in Libya that uh, have access to a lot of value that they can unlock and they can transact with the rest of the world that local banks don't offer them. Uh, earlier, I was talking, I was saying that we have two central banks and we have, we kind of like don't or ha don't have a way of financially uh, exchanging with the other side of the country. But we use Bitcoin now, we use USDT and stable coins. And that kind of escalated and kind of smoothed all of the issues that were there. They tried to fight it. Uh, we, we have a big mining community in Libya because our oil is subsidized. So generators cost nothing to generate power and mine Bitcoin. Our electricity is actually subsidized. It's less than four cents uh, a kilowatt. So it's really, really cheap. Uh, and, and, and that kind of spurred like a whole like community of miners in Libya and, and, and having access to, to, to Bitcoin. And uh, yeah, Bitcoin has, has changed many people's lives in Libya, many, endless, including mine. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a live example here. Uh, so yeah, yeah, in terms of other issues, I guess um, as soon as we move, yeah, sorry. Sorry, it's fascinating. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, it's, as soon as we like the awareness about Bitcoin moves, the less power that they have uh, across us. Because um, in in Libya, like the the governor, the banking system, the government, and all of these people, they're not uh, sophisticated enough to defeat such a thing like Bitcoin. For example, in America and Europe, they have many ways of like uh, trying to stop it, slow it down, like control it. They can do many things. But our our governments and our people in power, they're they're not that smart and they don't have the time or the knowledge to 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 control this movement. So and as soon as they learn about what Bitcoin does, they are gonna wanna buy every last Satoshi they can get their fingers on. Exactly. And hopefully that's a bit too late for them to actually uh do all of that. So so yeah, yeah, so but it's we, but it's but, but it's gonna mean that they're gonna need the local Bitcoin market that's already out there. You know, they're gonna be out there reaching out to the miners um, and the dealers and being like, "Hey, give me all the bitcoins, give me all the bitcoins, take my." Yeah, uh, like Iran. Yeah, Iran can kind of do the same thing. So it could be like that scenario if if they get uh, their uh, head around it. But yeah, yeah, I really think the the the, the game changer as as we discussed in the. Um, a session with Paolo Ar uh, Arduino from Paolo, uh, yes. Tether. Yeah. Um, I, I really think the game changer is adding uh, stable coins on Lightning. Once that happens, mm -hmm. I think all of these third world despots are gonna be bankrupt. All of these people that um, you know, all of these people that have starved their countries and sent their money to the Swiss bank account. Mm -hmm that gig is going to be over you're going to need to go tax people and taxing systems in the developing world are generally extremely inefficient and ineffective and uh, primitive so they all rely on inflation generally not all obviously but they predominantly they rely on inflation to finance them so take that away if you know it, once once you give people the ability to send dollars and buy and receive dollars at um, a fraction of a cent for transaction cost I mean, who's going to be using any of these currencies in places like Libya and Lebanon or Turkey or Brazil or why, you know, I, why? Exactly. is just why? so much better. And then, uh, you know, once you make that move and you're using it all on Bitcoin, well, then 
why don't you, you know, up, similarly, like going from the Libyan dinar to the dollar, you go from the dollar to Bitcoin and <laughs> you get um, better saleability across time. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful this will happen quickly because I think this, this, I, I can see the, um, I can see the, the, the WhatsApp moment. I can see the moment where this turns into something really global, where um, Tether could 10x and um, you know not not in value 10x in volume meaning we have hundreds of billions of dollars you know we get a trillion dollars of bitcoin uh, of um, tether around the world traveling at lightning speed uh, for tiny tiny little fractions it tether becomes the biggest central bank in the world after the federal reserve um, you know at a few at a few trillion dollars it becomes the second biggest i think and then um with that happening you know uh yes it adds demand for the us dollar but uh, that's no match for the ability of the us government to continue to spend so the us dollar will continue to decline and decline in value as bitcoin continues to go up in value i think yeah i've i've i was uh, with this guy uh, i i consult for him he has like if you, you can call it an exchange over there uh but it's not licensed or anything so he sells and uh, provides uh, uh crypto or let's say uh, bitcoin and other cryptocurrency <clears throat> recently in the last three months the volume that he does in usdt locally and what i mean by that he set up like couple of office around uh, a couple of offices in different cities and and lately he's just been like basically providing what the actual banks is not providing anymore because we don't have a system uh, where the infrastructure where the banks in libya kind of like trade with each other or can um uh, have a transaction between each other so he's actually doing that for libyan customers around cities where usdt is being transferred in libya and that's two times the amount of people that are actually buying uh bitcoin or buying usdt for trading uh wow yeah so it's kind of amazing so, I, so, I, so you're saying if, if i want to send uh, the, you're, you're referring to people who are sending money like within libya from yes. but instead of going through banks yeah they're sending it through usdt through so for, exchange change exchange shops yeah so he has he has an office in Tripoli and he set up on uh, four offices in different cities. One of them is Benghazi and another one is Masrata. So basically, uh, in, in a daily uh, transaction, he would have around half a million of USDT kind of transact between each each city, just inside wow. of Libya. So he'll have someone with the cash and basically want to hand over a cash to someone in, in Benghazi. And that avoids the issue as well of the of the signature that I told you about. Yeah. Because if, if you have someone in there, instead of bringing the money and all of the money get mixed up and you have to check it and all of that. So now what they do is like, you stay there, we'll send you USDT or we'll receive USDT and we'll exchange in cash here. And also happens with the rest of the country, which is, it blew my mind when I witnessed that when I was there. I was like, wow, these guys are, are taking over the actual banking infrastructure without needing to do it. They only needed the stable coin. That, and and the, basically the belief that the dollar is uh, is stable, I guess. That's that's the tragic thing about it. That's the tragic thing about stable coins. I mean, it's it's obviously the dollar is a huge upgrade over what they've used, but I mean, it's it's still. I yeah, mean, look that, at the U.S. You know, the yeah. U.S. isn't exactly utopia running on the dollar. So, yeah. but but yeah, but I think on the plus side, I think 
perhaps you know the average Libyan and Venezuelan and the Turk is going to be <clears throat> far better equipped for making the jump to Bitcoin from the dollar than the average American because they've uh, the, the, they're going to have to get it's into yeah. uh, these alternatives uh, as their uh, thing uh, as their local currencies continue to uh, disintegrate. Yeah, well, that's where we see the value. The, the 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 thing that they talk about is, oh, there's no use case and all of that. No, come come to these countries and see the actual use case here. It's multiple. It's it's different ways and different use cases for it, for all of that stuff to to happen. And uh, but I guess if you don't live it, you don't experience yeah. it. And, and that's and and, and this is this is the thing that uh, the critics of uh, Bitcoin and the Tether don't get. Like, I mean, you can sit there in your ivy tower and pontificate about how bitcoin's monetary policy is not ideal and if i could i would have made it this way and i would do it that way and you can pontificate about why tether is bad and where the risks are and of course it is centralized and of course there are risks in tether and you know you, you, the company could go bankrupt they could get hacked things can happen um they could uh, suffer all kinds of risks and of course it's nowhere near as safe as bitcoin from a technical perspective tether because it is centralized yet you're not this is the thing people don't get you're not comparing bitcoin and tether to this ideal theoretical thing that your professor dreams up in their uh, completely delusional la la land that is their university um in your university in your silly econ textbooks that are completely irrelevant to the real world you can come up with all kinds of perfect ideal monies and how you would do them but for the guy in Libya, for the guy in Benghazi, uh, the, the, they can't use that thing that you come up with, you know? You can't use the stuff that people are coming up with in American universities for anything in Libya or in Lebanon. And so then all of the shortcomings of Bitcoin and Tether have to be weighed against the actual alternative that people have. And the actual alternative in Libya is, your hard fork central bank, where you have two different central banks fighting with each other, printing the same bill, but you have to verify which signature. And obviously, I'm pretty sure neither of those two central banks is very good at sending and receiving money abroad, right? No. No, they don't no. allow it. Yeah, yeah, they're very bad, yeah. So those are your options. And this is this is the thing that I would like to snap into the face, into the... This is the thing that I would like to enter into the heads of the the, the, the Bitcoin haters. Offer something better or shut up. I mean, I, I just think of myself, you know, imagine if I was one of the people that would listen to moron fiat economists. Imagine if I was one of those people, instead of having made my own mind up, imagine if over the last 10 years, I'd continue to believe all of the garbage that they say. And then I was living in Lebanon and I listened to what people in universities say in the US, which is Bitcoin is stupid and it's gonna fail and it's a Ponzi. Well, what ended up really failing was my central bank money. And we're gonna get a lot more central banks fail and Bitcoin continues to operate. So you can be, you know, all of these Bitcoin haters can continue to, um, come up with all kinds of self-righteous angry reasons about why bitcoin can't and won't work but the reality is everybody in the world is on actual sinking ships of these national currencies the lebanese lira and the libyan dinar and the turkish lira and the brazilian whatever it is all of them are circling the drain all of these ships are 
uh, are, are sinking. It's a sinking ship. You're watching the ship sink while you're on it and you look around and you have a bunch of lifeboats and you have a bunch of fucking idiots who are just sitting there and telling you, oh, <laughs> these lifeboats are not perfect. If you want nice lifeboats, you should make them pink with unicorns on them. Uh, my unicorn lifeboats would be so much better than your crappy lifeboats. This is exactly what's going on. People are literally uh, having their lives destroyed because of their currencies. And this is their way out. They can use Tether and manage to trade locally and internationally. They can use Bitcoin and manage to save and trade locally and internationally, say for the long term, successfully. These are the options. So they do them. And the people who do this benefit enormously. You know, you look at the local Bitcoin dealer in Libya, as I'm sure in Lebanon and in all those places, the people who have gotten into Bitcoin and stable coins in those places have done extremely well compared to everybody else who's having their lives ruined. So there's no stopping this, you know, everybody's going to want to copy it. You can be the most loyal supporter of either of those two Libyan central banks. But at the end of the day, you know, you want to eat and you want to trade and you're self-interested and you're going to use the money that works and you're going to use those stable coins. It's, it's, um, it's it's very easy for them to scale. Everybody can download many different wallets that they can use for those things. And I think uh, with Lightning, it'll scale. Uh, I mean, it'll scale in terms of Lightning. Once it's on Lightning, it'll scale very easily. So I think um, this is this is a very underrated trend that's going to take over. I think the dollarization of the world and the Bitcoinization of the world over Lightning Network. That's where I see this going. It's the only network that can handle. Uh, scale, you know, all the shit coins can only handle very small amount of uh, stable coin transactions before the fees spike. So this kind of disintegration of stable coins over shit coins is, um, is the thing that's holding it back and the high fees. Once it goes on lightning, I just see an, 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 a, a, a giant super highway, um, to hyper dollarization and hyper bitcoinization. Um, Everything is that's not dollar or Bitcoin is going to be dumped. There's no reason for anybody anywhere in the world to hold any of these other currencies. Um, and over time, um, I think the dollar as well will uh, also be largely dumped. Yeah, I always joke around and say, like, I'm willing, <clears throat> I'm willing to give anybody like half a million uh, Libyan dinar. And if you live in America, I'm going to you have to come to Libya and take it. But you have to use a legitimate legal way of sending it back to America and tell me how you're going to do it. Just <laughs> without saying, using Bitcoin. Without using Bitcoin or crypto. Yeah. Find a way of how to get that money that I just gave you in Libya legally without having to go all of the bullshit like money laundering and all of that stuff that they say money control, yeah. whatever. I'm yeah, wondering how much uh, how, how much can you carry with you in USD out of the country? Can uh, you? Ten thousand. Ten thousand. What about gold? Uh, no, you're not allowed. Yeah, you're not allowed you're to not. carry any gold. No, you're not. Yeah, smuggle it. Yeah, but legally, no. Wow. Yeah. Only not not jewelry. Yeah. You mean, yeah, I mean you mean actual? Yeah. Yeah. No, jewelry. Gold. Obviously, like you can have like a lady wear a couple of things and all of that. But yeah, uh, but I mean like uh, gold bars and coins. No, you're not allowed. No. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, ten thousand dollars a flight to Malta. Yeah. So yeah. half a million dollars, you'd need fifty flights. 
50 flights, exactly. Yeah. And then from Malta, I have to like find a way to like seek it all the way. And, and then explain to the Maltese bankers. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the thing is, uh, both in Malta and Tunis and Turkey, they know about the money that is moving. They'll do so many things to take that money away from you. They like, even if you hand up like legal papers and all of that, they'll, if, if you get there in the wrong day, the day where they don't want any money to like from the government or I guess like something in control, they'll, they'll do nasty, dirty things to like rip off that document, take it away, hide it, whatever, so they can take the money. Because, yeah, I guess uh, they know the struggle and they know you can't complain to anybody. So you just uh, end up losing many stories of, uh, of Libyans that um, basically travel with that money with a document that is allowing them to travel with that money. And when you get to Tunis, they will say, like, ah, can we see that document? Ah, it's fake. And you're like, no, it's not fake. It has a stamp and has this and has that. No, 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 it's fake. We have to take this money. We have, like, we have to uh, confiscate it. And we're sorry, but you can't do anything. And and, and you end up losing 10,000 just like that. Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin fixes all of it. I mean, it's just so depressing what fiat has done to the world. And it's so uplifting to think that Bitcoin fixes it all. Just amazing. Yeah, it's just... And there's nothing you can do to stop it. Yeah, I, I have this this friend of mine uh, that has his son is in London here, uh, and I few years ago now got him into Bitcoin because every time he needs to send money to his son that is a student here in university, he has to like either uh, take ten thousand and his son will spend it in like a couple of months, or he has to pay like different people and and because we have a black market in Libya, so it's an illegal market where. For example, you give somebody money in, in Libya and they will bring you cash here in the UK. So I, I introduced him to, to like Bitcoin and uh, USDT and stuff. And now he just sits around in his app and he, instead of like sending his son like 10,000 that he just wastes in, in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, he just does like a weekly amount that he knows like it's enough for food and all of that because the cost is nothing and it happens very quick and it could happen any day in a week. And he's just like, off of that, he just bought a few bitcoins here and there just because he wants to like send it to his son. It's just he last when I was there, he was like, I think the bitcoins that I bought kind of will pay off all of the debt that my son kind of uh, needed for university and all of the money that cost me to like put him in school, which was uh, an amazing story to see as well. All right. Well, I will see you guys next week. Take care.